Hey, hey, everyone. Uh, welcome to Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree. I'm half of your host, Nicholas Lorimer, and I'm joined by the other half of your hosts. Gabriel Krauser, and we are in a very dry thorn tree. Oh, lordy, lord. Yeah, you know, eh, some, nothing happens in politics for a while, and then suddenly everything happens. Um, South Africa's been fairly boring, but the president decided to condense all of the action down into sort of uh, like two weeks. So today... Uh, we talked about the spill on the Daily Friends show, which is, of course, the other podcast. Um, we got, over the weekend, a chance to look at the expropriation bill, which is, I think, what we're going to really talk about today. Uh, there was a story and report about black farmers who were successful being chucked off of state land for not offering bribes, which is like... Amazing. Such Amazing a, story. Such, Most yeah. You it's should learn exactly, on so you can read that story. <laughs> it's it's exactly the thing we've been warning about. It's like, it, I, I, I even wrote an article saying that, uh, you know, property rights are not just for straight white men. And I was saying that <laughs> this is exactly what will happen if the government owns yeah. the land. And, and uh, Gabriel, of course, has also written at length about that sort of stuff. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's, major, it's an this even... This is a major nightmare. And here's, and here's what's bizarre about it. Can I jump straight into the expropriation bill? No, 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 because give me a sec, like... give me a second. Okay. And we also had the president finally actually talk a little bit about farm murders. Uh, he now recognizes that, he, that they do exist, that they happen, which is a massive upgrade in terms of his yeah. uh, disposition. Huge. Zero to one. <laughs> yeah, so there's been a lot that's going on. Oh, and we've got an economic re recovery plan, uh, which... The first signs of it is, uh, what was the quote? It was an ANC, I think it was a member of the Communist Party or an ANC insider who said that it looked as though it was written by an intern. So, <laughs> things are looking up. Um, but let's get on to that expropriation bill, which is really something special. Now, Gabriel has uh, done a lot of digging about in the guts of it. Um, I tried to dig about in the guts of it, uh, and I got a little bit of the way, but Gabriel was much faster off the market. So, Gabriel speaks legalese better than I do, being older and wiser. Uh, so he managed to find some of the key little spicy nuggets in there. Um, but uh, yeah, so what? let's talk about what those are. Okay, so first thing is, this is not about land. It defines property as, it defines property according to Section 25 of the Constitution, which says, and I quote, property is not limited to land. That's Section 25, oh subsection 4, let it be. Look it up. <laughs> That's how they define it. By the way, they quote that section of the Constitution. So Business Day's headline, are oh, they clarify which land is going to be expropriated without compensation. Rubbish, firstly. Secondly, bless me, they give, four, they give five conditions in which property can be expropriated without compensation. But they say it's not limited to that. Yes, so they say these are including but not limited to. So they're not offering clarity. And I'm hugely disappointed. Richard Spoor is like a lawyer that I respect a lot. He's done a lot of fighting against a lot of government guys, but there he is on Twitter saying, oh, wonderful, what clarity? What clarity is there in saying, okay, these are the situations in which we can expropriate property, property without compensation, including yada, 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 but not limited to that. So that's a nightmare. It's not and, just and, land, and it's not just limited to those four, five circumstances. Yeah. Um, but I think it's also worth looking at those five circumstances very quickly uh, so that we can so actually I wanna, talk about, yeah. Yeah, even if you remove that little bit saying limited but not include, uh, uh, what is limit, included, not limited is, to, yeah. yeah. What is included is, is already pretty bad. This is like a pizza where they're like, 
we can put anything on the pizza, including like sewage and uh, hypodermic needles, used heroin needles. Uh, but that's only theoretically, right? Because we haven't spelled that out. But what's actually yeah, on the here's, pizza? Here's what's definitely on the pizza. Here's what's <laughs> definitely. Here's the poison that you know is on the pizza. Okay. So first, they say if you are holding land and not using it, and your plan is to sell the land later for more than you bought it for, we can expropriate that without compensation. Oof. So <laughs> the president would know better than Nicholas or I that this is called capital gains. You mm. buy a 10, you sell a 12. That's how real money gets made. Fools like us work for a living, but the guys with real <laughs> money use their money to make money. How do they do it? Buy low, sell high. It's as old as money. <laughs> and, the, and the bill says, if you do that, we're going to expropriate you with our compensation. Now, we may expropriate you with our compensation. They do limit that to land. It says land in that subclause, which mm -hmm. itself mm -hmm. is a problem because the Constitution, Section 25, prevents against arbitrary. No law may allow for arbitrary uh, expropriation without compensation. So just to say land is one special asset where you're not allowed to buy low and sell high, but you can do that with stocks and bonds and paintings and yeah. bitcoins, Krugerrands. That is arbitrary. It's arbitrary to classify land that way. I try to think of two ways that you could specify, say, why is land so different? One is to say it's finite. There's a limited amount of land, right? Whereas the bank, the Reserve Bank, can print unlimited bonds if it feels like it. And uh, the last 10 years, unfortunately, under Praveen Gordon, we doubled the debt. And under Tito Mboweni, I think, despite his better efforts, uh, we've increased the debt oh, yeah. another 30%. So our debt is potentially infinite, uh, whereas land is limited. So right. you might say with, with the potentially infinite stuff, you can do what you like, but with the limited stuff, you can't. Okay, here's something that's limited. Bitcoins. Bitcoins are literally finite. They can only be 21 million bitcoins. Mm. So if you buy Bitcoin at $200 and sell them at $300, expropriation without compensation. By yeah. the same logic. And okay, but then you could say one more thing. One more thing. You could say it's not culturally significant. Mm. But now I was an art critic and I know about Gerard Sakota. I know about Gladys and Landlou. I know about Ermiston and PNF and uh, Walter Battis and the whole lot of them. And their works, some of their works sell for much more than a farm. 15 million, 20 million, 25 million. That's a very nice farm. Okay. Is it culturally significant? It's one of Gerard Sakota's works is more culturally significant than any Millie farm I've been to. <laughs> I don't know. You haven't been to every Millie farm, so we can't say that with absolute certainty. I'm not saying it's. I'm not saying it's. It's more culturally significant than any Millie farm, just than any of the like thirty odd Millie farms I've been to. Okay, so it is limited, but it's very culturally significant. And I know people who have made millions and millions of rands in the last decade, who bought in the early Zuma era, and sold during the Great Africa Boom in the last couple yeah. of years. And, and in the meantime, and they kept the paintings in the basement where no one could see them, no one could use them because they didn't want children with sticky fingers to touch them or the light to degrade the quality of the paint. So right. they were just buying low and selling high. Culturally significant, finite works. These painters are dead. There's not going to be any more of them. By the logic of this thing, uh, if you have bought a painting and they go to your house and they see it's in the basement and you're not using it to look <laughs> at, then they can expropriate it without compensation. 
or they have to give some justification for why land, why it's not arbitrary to, de- to define it as land. So either they have to let it go no. and say it's all finite, culturally significant stuff, or find some other criterion that's not arbitrary, try and make an argument for it, or they have to go for a criterion-less attribution of land as being a special thing that you're not allowed to buy low and sell high. And, uh, and then I think they're running straight into the arbitrary clause, and that's rubbish. Section two of five is quick because it's about government land. I don't care wait, about wait, government wait, wait. land. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let's just talk a little bit yeah. more about that one as well. Because there are people out there who I think would be tempted to say, okay, okay, sure, fine, fine, fine. We don't want people's artworks taken away. But, like, if someone is buy some land and then they're just sitting on it and they don't want to do anything with it, then surely that's, like, fine to take it away from them, right? Before, if they're, if they're kind of just wasting it. Um, but I actually remember, you know, growing up in Joburg, over the years I've seen uh, townhouse complexes develop. And what's quite interesting is a couple of cases, the developer would buy he would have a property and he would only build townhouses on one half of it. And then he would need to accumulate money and build up over time to build on the second half. So there was development coming. It just wasn't economic at the time. Um, and so you're going to, all of those guys, right, who are actually sort of building stuff, they're building new houses, they're building affordable houses for the middle class. They can, they could be cut out of, you know, they could be vulnerable to having their stuff seized by a rapacious municipality. And of course, municipalities are, uh, part of the the groups that are allowed to ask to expropriate your stuff, which is a bit terrifying if you know anything about the rural municipalities in South Africa. They are very, um, yeah. shall we say, they're they, a bit no, bandit-like. Fair. They are. <laughs> they, they, yeah, they make those guys in the, in the, in the Wild West movies look uh, like, like they should be running our municipalities. Yeah, good, so, luck, but, uh, good luck defending your uh, holiday house that you have on the coast uh, from yeah. these guys. Or your farm. If you've got a farm and you don't, and you and some of your grassland needs to be regenerated because it's been overgrazed, you've got to do nothing with it for five years. Underutilized land. Also, Venezuela. This is all Venezuela started with expropriation without compensation for latifundos for underutilized idle land. That's all it took. And all it and takes is one bad judgment to to really weaken this provision even further, right? Like if someone who's kind of using the land but isn't sort of using the land uh, gets ruled that he's not using the land enough by some dodgy judge, it's not going to be okay, uh, good for other people. We have to cut to number three. Number two is yeah. about the state expropriating from the state. Oh, man, it's the state's yeah, already so technical. mad. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't matter. So I want to coin a I want to coin a phrase here. Don't attribute it to me, but this is very important. So there's EWC. We're all tired of EWC. There's private property expropriation without compensation, which separates the private property stuff from the government, expo- the Department of Health expropriating land from the Department of Do Nothing. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it's the private property EWC that really matters. PPEWC. Puke. Puke. Okay. Puke. <laughs> the puke provisions are what you need to worry about. First puke provision says if you're not using your land, we can take it. Second yeah. puke provision says, if you've lost control over your land, so let's say you're sitting, you've built the townhouses on the one half, you've got another 10 hectares on the other half, it's just empty land next to the highway between Pretoria and Joburg, and you're waiting for the money to build up to be able to buy, to buy the nice, uh, you know, low middle class, the kinds of places where um, maybe we could afford to stay. Mm-mm-mm. 
You know that if you don't do anything with that land in the meanwhile, then the municipality is going to come after you. You're going to say, no, look, I've got business plans to do this in 10 years. They're going to say it's idle between now and then. You should give it up to someone who's got the money to do it now. And guess who has the money now? South Africa, That's guess strange. why? We got it from the IMF. Okay. Um, so to resist that, you let some people move onto your land. But because you haven't put up nice infrastructure, you put up like a few little rondavels. It's very low income stuff. They decide to go on a rent boycott. They don't want to pay you rent. Basically, you get a land invasion. And then? The second clause of puke is that if your land has been invaded, it's not your land anymore. Then the right. government can expropriate without compensation. So what's the exact wording of the, of the thingy, of the, the okay. bill? The exact wording is notwithstanding the Title Deeds Registration Act. Hold on. Hold on. Uh... Notwithstanding registration of ownership in terms of the Deeds Registries Act of 1937, Act Number 47 of 1937, which basically says if you've got a title deed, it's yours and you can do with it as you like, uh, excepting you can't pollute, where an owner has abandoned land by failing to exercise control over it, compensation can be just and equitable at nil. So wow. let me give you my favorite story, which is exactly where this kind of thing has happened, where landowners lost control over their land. It was the first story I did for the IRR. Nick is probably sick of me telling it. I went down to Kutuleni, uh, which is about 100 k's east of Nkandla, near Malmuth. It is one of the most dire parts of this country. And there, the Mnyandus and Charles Nkomalo, Lutheran Zulus who'd been on that land, their families had been on that land since at least 1886 got into a dispute with a neighboring chief, Tandazani Zulu, and on their version, he said to them, if you don't leave the land, I'm going to burn you out. And he's been accused of murdering people in pursuit of mineral rights and increasing his flock to, you know, get more tribute from, from peasants, basically, from very, very poor people. You can't really afford to be giving him a bottle of whiskey in, in every year, but whatever. So he comes along and he says, we're going to have a meeting on Sunday. Doesn't show up to the meeting on Sunday. People there threaten to burn them out of house and home if they don't leave by the next Sunday. Next Sunday comes along. They call the police. There's a Zulu MP at the front of their of their homestead. There's kids with AK-47s. There's teenagers behind them with uh, with guns and uh, asakais and knobkiris. And the police are there. And the police say, we're going to escort you out of here. And as they do, they watch the guys go in. Charles Nkomalo's daughter's wedding was coming up, the biggest expense in his life. He had the wedding dress. He had food and booze for everyone. He had the presents, la bola, all taken, wedding dress burnt, put into a van, driven away. Walter Mnyandu, the old man, he died in hiding. They spent the next year basically in winter going around place to place, staying with cousins, like hoping that no one would find out where they are because they were afraid that they'd be killed. And... Uh, 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 the older Mnyandu died of the cold and uh, the younger Mnyandu who was 82 uh, last time I saw him was still okay but uh, going blind and like weeping through his cataracts because he had the title deed they got the title deed but they can't go back to their homes because the police still haven't even begun to try to arrest the guys who did it to them so they are in hiding I can't tell you where they are but they're far away and uh, and the son was training to be a lawyer to try and to try and get this right. Well, he's going to get his law degree just in time for the government to pass an, a bill into law which says you've lost control over your land. You didn't have enough muscle. You didn't pull out the AK-47 and shoot them through the eyeballs. And the police were useless. So you lost control. It's no longer your land. We can expropriate that land without compensation. 
Those guys who refused to pay so, bribes to Inupumalanga, they've been kicked off their land. They've got land invaders on their land. They've lost control of their land. Yeah. They must be expropriated without compensation. Puke. So let's just let's just do a little uh, little fun unintended consequences version of what this bill, what that uh, provision is going to do, right? So what is the incentive structure that's just been created for all landholders? It's to exercise in in order if if simply losing control of some of your property is enough to get the state able uh, to allow the state to just take it from you, right? For no compensation, then you are incentivized to use whatever means necessary, probably well outside the law, to make sure that no one even sets foot on your property without your permission. And that means that those who can afford it will hire heavies and thugs and warlords to beat up, to kill, to chase away, to intimidate anyone who might come near a property and so you'll you'll get instead of a land invasion that you know after six months gets cleared by the cops after a long court battle or something like that right or two years whatever yeah uh you will just get a gun battle in the middle of the night and a whole bunch of people turning up dead and nobody who saw anything and who wins uh, nick when that happens who wins this is the most important question to ask why would anyone try to pass this law because that's what it's setting up. It's saying, if you don't use your land, we're going to take it. If you if you lose control of your land, you, we're going to take it. So you need to pump energy into that land mm. and 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 drive up stripe. It's an incentive. It's telling land invaders, dude, just fuck, get on that land and the government will take it and stay there. And it's telling landowners, get people off your land by whatever means you can. Because if you don't, government's going to take your land. It is driving exactly that scenario of, of blood on the streets. With the media right there to watch it, who wins? Well, you can see a whole bunch of warlords and fat cats winning, right? So let's say you're in a rural municipality. Um, the local ANC warlord rounds up uh, people in the local community, says, hey, that farmer over there is not using his land, doesn't let you graze cattle, what, what. Just go and set up some shacks on his land. Um, and then we'll make sure that you get it. And then he can, uh, the, 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 the land invasion happens, and then he can take him to the take him to the national government, get his land expropriated for no compensation, and then hand it out as politi political patronage, right? It's just like a kind of feudalism. Who, who no, okay, but you, wins? You're saying, okay, so I agree with you. Land that's expropriated is good for whoever's in charge of the patronage network. It's the same as a yeah. mafia. Anytime you do a heist, you, you rob that truck full of cigarettes, it's good for everyone in the family. Because now we all have a bit of money, we can have some parties, we can spread it around. But I'm saying the blood on the streets, the, the that violence. Oh yeah, well, you the, racial, the racial hate mongers, yeah. The EFF. The is racial hate this. mongers. EFF is going to love this. BLF is going to love this. Some parts of the landless people movement are going to love this. Also, across uh, our shores, Patrice Colors, Marie Kelly. What are they? What are the Opal Tometi? What are they going to feel about? Uh, what are the leaders of Black Lives Matter going to feel about this? What what is what is Colin Kaepernick who says uh, violence is violence and revolt is the only way forward? What the right. people who think that black and white people, it's actually moral to live together in peace and harmony. It's immoral for black and white people to work together because because race is uh, is so deep, and the and the wounds are so deep that it's that it's a that you're you're a traitor. To, to to authentic racialism if you yeah. if you want a system of of the rule of law and peace and harmony those guys are going to get a great kick out of this 
Domestic and so the communists. Right. It's, that, it's that nexus. It's that nexus of ra- racists and communists coming together, right? Because this is, as you said, potentially the destruction of private property in a very practical sense. Um, even if not in a completely, you know, even if private property hasn't been technically completely abolished, uh, this will probably be as close as not to ending it. Well, also, once you've got this idea that you, you, the whole point of the exercise is to make explicit that which is implicit, if they can pass this bill. Then they'll, then, you know, we'll have some blood on the streets, racial strife, good for the patronage network, good for the race mongers, good for the commies, not good for business. More people send their money overseas, more people immigrate, more skills are drained. The economy doesn't do well. Jobs falter. The patronage network's sort of grip on the national purse uh, is uh, is slackened by the fact that the purse is just sort of uh, getting lighter yeah. and lighter. So then what do you have to do? Do you do what Venezuela did and you use the same logic of latifundos of idle estates to go to a concrete mill, to go to a construction working house, to say, look, you guys aren't uh-huh. working enough. We're going to take your assets over. We think we can manage it in a more uh, socially impactful way. You're busy building uh, townhouses in Clifton. We want to build uh, multi-story complexes in inner in city Pretoria. Yeah. Okay. That's how, that's, how, that's how you keep the wheels spinning. And how do you then justify that? Because this only says that you can take idle land or or land that's or assets that have lost control well if there's a big enough strike at a mine or a sawmill or a water bottling plant as they've been in the last month you can just say look you guys have lost control strategically in order to preserve the peace you've had a few people shot between security guards and and mine workers or strikers engaging with each other in order to keep the peace we have to take over this business yeah. Or you are sitting on your thing idly. You've had a lockdown. You're not paying your people, and uh, and you what? You're hoping to sell off at a better price. That's against so the rules. State- oh, you say it's not land. Well, guess what's implicit? It says explicitly land, but what's implicit in that is all property. How do you know? Yeah. Well, because at the start of the act, it defines property, property yes. within this clause as uh, as as it's uh, to be had in section 25, which says explicitly it's not limited to land. Right, and this is so, this is a kind of textbook authoritarian behavior, right? You create a crisis and then you assume more power in order to end the crisis of your own creation. Yeah, this is this is the playbook, and and I think what's very important to understand is that some people, okay, so some people at the Institute of Race Relations have been warning about this for for two decades. Anthea Jeffrey is one of them, and it's because she noticed that twenty five thousand mostly black people, mostly non political. Uh, people were killed during the People's War between 86 and 94. Largely IFP, ANC battles, but most of the sort of uh, killing being done from the ANC broader coalition. And, and you know, I want to say with my Realpolitik hat on that during times of war or times of crisis, and I think we were, you know, People's War, it is a kind of war, it is a kind of civil war uh, for, for succession powers. Uh, people kill people. Uh, this is very serious, but it's also not uh, a, a time to turn your brain off, right? You've got to keep your brain switched on. Okay, how do you deal with that? How do you think about that? And something like the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, very good. And yet, it didn't confront those issues, almost at all. Uh, right. If you look at the way they dealt with Boy Patong, miserable. Another thing is implementing the rule of law, saying, and, okay, and now that happened, also, it's never going to happen again. Yeah. Also famously, the ANC, of course, um, accepted collective responsibility of some of the dodgy stuff it did, which is the same almost as no responsibility because it's a very sort of 
uh, fluffy. Oh yeah, no, we all we all were guilty. Oh well, I guess it's all behind us now. Which is like a very you don't get a lot of detail yeah. out of that. I mean, we still don't know that much about what happened in some of those uh, camps run by the ANC during uh, during the struggle years. Like in uh, what was it? Quarto was the name of that the bad one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're north of the border. There were some very, very heavy things going on. So, and and some of the people who were involved in that, some of the people who knew or were ordering, um, basically burning in Pimpi and terrorizing townships in order to get people to uh, all come in line, get away from Mazapo, get away from the IFP, uh, stop thinking about the UDF the way they used to. That was just a, a front. Uh, all those kinds of um, very uh, sort of, I don't know, it was like social media before the internet, right? So it was, uh, and also in a lot of ways before newspaper and radio. So a lot of it was with landmines and burning tires. It was it was very heavy dissing and intimidation. It was terrorism. And, uh, and, and, and we didn't come to terms with that. And people who were in charge of that are still in charge today. Can't tell you exactly who, uh, but you know that that thinking hasn't totally gone away because it hasn't been brought to light. We, we haven't had that process of, of uh, processing. So that's a good reason to worry about um, serious power players in the shadows being interested in producing the worst case scenario by the very same playbook that Tito used in Yugoslavia and that the, after the fall of Yugoslavia, the Serbs, the Bosnians and the Croats all used to try and sort of uh, corner their sections of power you know, East Germany, Stasi, trainees, uh, some of them were great. And some of them have come to terms with what happened. And and some of them, I think, are still inside the ANC pulling the levers apart. So that's a major danger. The other major danger is that, the, is that we've fallen into this place of complacency because the writing has been on the wall for so long. But, you know, the the, the wall hasn't been splattered with enough blood. For it to really come right out. so right? you know we we people like us warn that the end is coming the end is coming and everyone's like ah but you said that two years ago and the end's not here yet it makes the whole thing feel you know because it's happening like a car crash in slow motion i think it kind of gives people a sense of invulnerability the force is still going to you know uh break your bones but because it's kind of coming slowly people sort of relax they're like oh well, you know it's yeah. not here yet. We still got time. Yeah. We still got time, and it's it's the matrix. You see, look at the gun ripples. Look at the like air. How it. How yeah, it ripples. yeah, yeah. Isn't it pretty? Okay, so here's why 2020 is different from a from a global reality politic point of view. The lockdown. The lockdown has put 2.1 million people out of work. Some portion of those people are good teasing people who, who, who are going to be fighting their way back onto the economic value add ladder. But some portion of those people are going to be so irritated that they end up taking drugs and getting drunk and doing exactly the kinds of things I did when I got fired. I was fired. <laughs> I was very upset. I was useless. I could hardly, like the only thing I was good for was babysitting and taking naps. Other than that, I was just like a <laughs> mess. Well, someone's and, got to uh, take the naps. Someone's got to take the good naps. So, so that's a source of a lot of frustration. That's a that's a little uh, you know th within that 2.1 million, there's like a hard there's a nugget of hardcore uh, belligerence to to take advantage of. This is one of the major preconditions of every uh, socialist race nationalist takeover that I can think of. 
Another precondition is that the upper classes hedge themselves so strongly against their own country, both financially and in terms of the esteem economy, and in terms of sort of how they how they present the narrative, that they can't offer any real opposition anymore. Now, what's happened to the middle to the upper class in 2020 is that uh, is that those of them who have enough money are looking at a very nice windfall going forward, right? No matter how bad things are, in a way. Obviously, they could be bad enough that they really get hit, but probably not because there is such a desperation for capital right now that the returns that they can look forward to are great. So that's another precondition. And then the last precondition is that the middle class is, uh, is, is basically put into a position where it no longer trusts elites. Why would you not trust elites? Why would you not trust the economists to say, if you do expropriation without compensation, it's going to be miserable for the economy. It's going to make your job as a bank clerk or a, or a mid-level management dude at a, uh, uh, what do you call Home Depot in South Africa again? A builder's warehouse. At a builder's warehouse. You know, you're, you're a management dude at builder's warehouse. You're making, I don't know, 20K a month, 18K a month. And you're like, yeah, okay, I've believed all those guys who said that if we do EWC, it's going to be terrible. Um, but now I'm wondering, because they were all guys in, in like, you know, lab coats effectively, you know, all people with ties and PhDs telling me what to do. And we're sitting in South Africa, which had the world's longest lockdown, probably one of the world's harshest lockdowns, and by my calculations, might very well have won the race to herd immunity. We're going to see about the second wave. It's an <laughs> outstanding question. But right yeah. now it looks like, we had the fastest, deepest spread of the coronavirus as well as the harshest lockdown. As that yeah. fact continues to permeate through society, that 2.1 million jobs were lost, and not only did we not save lives, we actually accelerated the process by stuffing taxis full and putting people in queues, and, and just luckily not that many people died. Why? Because we're already so poor that, uh, that we have a <laughs> fraction of the 70-year-old pluses that uh, the countries we compare ourselves to do. It's going to make people Although, very distrustful of the elites. And add to that the craziest thing, and which is why I think Ramaphosa is trying to drive through so much of this stuff right now. Dude, if they pass expropriation without compensation in July next year, the bill that we've just talked about, as well as the constitutional amendment to give the bill full effect, because as it stands, the bill could be challenged on my reading of it. If they waited to do it next year, what are you going to see? You're going to see GDP climb down by 16% quarter on quarter, 51% on an annualized basis in the second quarter. In the third quarter, it climbed up a little bit. In the fourth quarter, it climbed up again. In the first quarter of next year, it climbed up further. We, You cannot do worse than what we did this year. We literally <laughs> made it illegal to do all business, basically. Yeah. All business excepting selling food and medicine, right? Once you turn the taps back on, we have to get better. We won't get back to where we were anytime soon, but we'll be getting better. If you then pass EWC or puke, more to the point, next year in July or next year in September, then you're going to see up, 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 and then down, down, down. But right now, we've got a crisis so huge that if they pass it right now, you're not going to see an obvious dip. In fact, you're probably going to see the economy rise. And how excited do you think <laughs> Julius Malema is going to be to say, oh, all those white elites told you that if you pass expropriation without compensation, it's going to spook the markets and we're going to lose money. And yet, in the very same quarter that we passed it, we saw the economy grow by 30% on an annualized basis. Right. 30%, yeah. Dude, and when, you, and when people are irritated enough with the elites because of everything else that they've done, 
they're going to be ready to hear that message. And I don't mean everyone. I mean a small enough minority that they can terrorize everyone else. So I think this is the perfect time. Do not forget that the Soviet Union was a pipe dream, that Karl Marx predicted the fall of the upper and middle classes in Europe decades and decades before it happened. And he thought it was going to happen in the most advanced of the European countries. It happened in the least advanced European country, Russia. Why? Because World War I made the peasants extremely frustrated. It, 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 it immiserated them. It, it, it used them like, like soft tissue to be pushed into a meat grater. And they resented it. And so, they, and so Russians who had been very sort of uh, willing to listen to the rules and, and very peace abiding and kind of very conservative in a way, uh, suddenly became radicalized or a significant enough portion of them became radicalized that or together with the middle class being enough wattled, that they didn't do anything. Yeah. And the middle class got wattled and the upper classes got so freaked out that they ended up betting on the other team. And that's how it happened. And on top of that, the world was distracted. World War One distracted the world. So uh, after they did their exercise in puke, there was no one on there to come and stop it. And right now, dude, they just toppled a statue of Abraham Lincoln in Portland. And by then, yeah. I mean, you- probably uh, BLM or Antifa, because on it, they said stolen land. That was the issue, the land issue. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it was a fallist. Oh. But they're not coming. No one's coming to help us. Yep. Because this yeah, is after no, no, World that's... War One. This is the 21st century's World War One, and I think we're going to be the 21st century's uh, Soviet Union. I really do, and it's and it's a flipping nightmare because it's it is like a slow car crash that is just almost unstoppable. Right. Um, can I go off on a tangent about Portland very quickly? You better, dude. Because I, I think it does. I think it does relate it does relate to something that we have a problem with. You know, there's obviously all this ideology, ideology, ideological problems in Portland and BLM, and you know we've we've talked. You've you've written a whole report about that, which is really good. But there's something else going on here, and that's the failure of local government, actually. Which is, in Portland, you vote for one party every single year, always without fail, and the only people they ever have to fear are people who are more radical than them, right? The people who run for election there. So the mayor is currently in a fight of his life against the pro-Antifa candidate uh, in, in Portland, who by one poll that came out is 11 points up over him. I doubt that, but it's possible, right? There comes a certain point where you're sort of like, I'm like, you know, guys, you kind of do have to actually punish the people who are messing up your lives. And, and here's what I mean by they're messing up their lives. Antifa has been running amok in Portland for years I think at this point, actually, it's gone in waves and they capitalized a lot on the latest protests. But there's been drama in Portland and people fighting and people burning down stuff and people fighting with the cops and all that since at least, I think, 2018. Because then Antifa has become such a movement there. Let me wind that back. When I was in New York, I lived in New York for a year, 2012, 2013. I remember seeing this amazing sport where guys on rollerblades uh, they play kind of like r- rollerblade hockey on a concrete uh, sort of field, little mini field in a public park, or rollerblade lacrosse, where you've got a little uh, scoop of claw and you throw a ball at each other and you try and get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, this looks like the most fun game outside of ice hockey. I mean, th- this just looks insanely, insanely fun. 
and I watched it a bit and then I wanted to join in one of the games after seeing it a couple of times. And one of my roommates uh, from the Midwest who'd been to Portland was like, dude, this game comes from Portland and just pay attention closely because uh, you'll see a bunch of New Yorkers play it and they play it in quite a civilized way. And then we sat there for two hours so we could watch like a few teams roll through. And then we saw a Portland team roll through. And they, dude, I saw a guy's shin get broken in front of me. And I was yeah, like, what Portland's is this? favorite Portland, sport is fighting. <laughs> Portland in my head was like, it was Portlandia. It was this place of like weird, ambiguously sexual, racially ambiguous sort well, of human beings <laughs> floating in ethereal ways through the miasma of like Buddhist, like good feelings and But uh, this is this is the story of the sixties, right? This is the story of the sixties in America. First, you had the good, uh, happy, hippy-dippy, soft, floaty-through guys who came through and they undermined all the law and order. <laughs> and then the bad hombre, there was no one to stop them. And that's kind of what happened in Portland. You got all these sentimental old farts who hate, who think that any time the police push someone around, even if they're, you know, trying to burn down a Starbucks, uh, is some kind of horrific crime against humanity. But then... Vote in moronic mayors who don't let the police actually police. And then their cities get burned down. And then they go, man, those cops sure provoked those rioters. We better vote in the more pro-riot person. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right? And and the analogy for South Africa is there are a whole bunch of municipalities in this country where I kind of feel like there's a similar situation. Where the only people the ANC ever have to even think about fearing electorally are the EFF. Um, you know, like deep rural Limpopo and deep rural Northwest. And so, you know, they run the place really badly and uh, they destroy the whole of society. And if voters don't, you know, you've got to change governments every now and again, I think, for republics to work properly. Or else yeah. they get kind of, even the best parties, even the best ideological groups, even people I tend to agree with, get kind of sticky and lazy and crusty all around the edges, and it's just really, really bad. Anyway, sorry, that's been building up for a long time. I need to get that out. Um, but okay. it's why when well, I see yes. a, a, yeah. a statue pulled over in Portland, I'm like, you know what? The people of Portland, they voted for this to a certain degree. Of, of Abraham Lincoln. Jesus Christ. Of Abraham Lincoln. I mean, you know, like if he's not safe, then no one in the past is safe, quite frankly. So, so I've, I've got something that's been sitting on my chest. Two things. One, one is about a good old honest Abe, which was one of the weirdest, I think the last conversation I had at Princeton about race, which really freaked me out, was I remember I was super stoned and I was chilling with some mates, very close friends, and uh, I was just kind of weirded out because it is, you know, it was 2012, 2013, which is which is what like Jonathan Haidt identifies as the turning, using hard data right. in terms yeah, of teenage suicide. That's when this really begins. Yeah. In a, so, in a way. and I I was seeing it coming. I was seeing guys saying, "Oh, okay, Obama got reelected, but after that, we're bound to get a white president, and then we need to like re re rebel against the system." And I was like, "What are you talking about? You've literally just got a job at Oliver Weinman. Like, you are going to be making a hundred thousand dollars a year. Why don't you?" Why don't you do some add some value? You know, what is this? Oh, anyway, so I, you know, hospital or something. Oh, and and uh, one of my fellow students is is a Zimbabwean American who who've spoken in American accent and you know, sort of really didn't identify much as Zimbabwe. She said, "I'm not an African." 
and then I was very upset. Uh, and then I was like, okay, I'm going to talk about I'm going to talk about race a little bit with some of my close friends and just try and figure out. And I was like, I think the problem, I think a big problem, is that a lot of people, a lot of people are encouraged to believe that you should be proud to be black, right? And I was like, it just seems crazy to me to be proud of your race, whatever your race is. And I get it that during the civil rights movement, during the uh, resistance to slavery, during anti-apartheid era times, maybe getting that team vibe going is good to stop free riders who sort of taking advantage of the apartheid system and uh, becoming black policemen and, I don't know, abusing other black people. Like, I do, I do, I appreciate that internalized racism thing. And I think Steve Biko's argument that you want to get rid of internalized racism, okay, you go from sort of being black and hating yourself to you because you're black to loving yourself because you're black. That's fine. But that seems like the uncompleted argument. It seems like the next step is you need to realize, dude, being black ain't cool. Being white ain't cool. Being Chinese, you know, there's just no race that's get it, that should get you any kudos. And I was like, it seems weird to me, but let's take it to whiteness. Or any of you guys, what could possibly make you proud to be white? And they're all like, no, I'm not proud to be white. And I was like, okay, but let's dig deep here. Like maybe, maybe we're lying to ourselves. Maybe we are proud to be white. What, you know, let's cast our minds through history. Isn't there something that makes you proud to feel white? And I was asking because I was looking for it in myself. And I, and I wasn't finding it, but I wasn't sure whether it's there or not. And one of my friends said, well, if I think of what Abraham Lincoln did, it makes me feel proud to be white. And it was so interesting because I watched the room. I saw like three of the other dudes in the room go, ah, yes. And I was like, no, not at all. That, that, that's, that, like, it makes me proud to, to know that as a human being, a human can do that. Or I felt like very close to America because I was living there. I felt like I'm proud of this American project. That they were not just him, that so many millions of Americans made that brave step to defend the high ideals of their constitution against seditious, slavery, wanting, rapacious maniacs, and even some Feudal honorable chaps of the Confederates. Yeah. Mm. And, the, and it was great. It was a great, great, great thing to do. And something America should be proud of as Americans. But I was like, dude, I don't know. This, this is really good because, because that is the best example I can think of. And it's not good enough. But I think when you go and topple a statue of Abraham Lincoln, I, you know, I'd bet at least $5 that it was a white dude who went and did that. Because at some part of his lizard brain, he realized he was proud to be white because of Abraham Lincoln. And then he realized he's ashamed of that response and therefore wanted to take him down. That's just like the most arm's length speculative kind of nonsense uh, interpretation. But if you can find a better, better reason to pull down an Abraham Lincoln statue, then you can run this podcast because <laughs> I, I, mean, I don't know. So maybe there's one out there. I, I, I've just remembered something that I wanted to go off on. I've been waiting for this forever and I missed the boat on it. So, you know, that there's a chunk of the sort of like hectic black nationalist, racial nationalist, uh, I don't know historians propagandists who really desperately because they're so you know in love with the idea that a race is good depending on what other people of that race have achieved right they desperately desperately want to claim ancient egypt as you know the original black yeah. nation and the creator of civilization all that kind of thing right and this group uh has had a uh, last night had a little fun uh, 
assault on the popular culture when you know uh, the Israeli actress Gal Gadot. Gal Gadot. I don't know how to pronounce it. Anyway, She's extremely good very, looking. Yeah, extremely good looking. She played Wonder Woman in the DC movies. Um, she's 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 hot stuff. She was, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? She was cast to play Cleopatra in an upcoming film. And there was, of course, a Twitter backlash from the these particular types. There was also from some Arab uh, nationalists as well, which was quite funny. Who said, how come they can't find a black person? How come they can't find an Egyptian? How come they can't find, you know, someone who's more representative with darker skin who can play Cleopatra? It had to be this Zionist colonialist white person who is of Polish ancestry. Right? It was like spitting their mouth. Of course... What I, what the reason I knew this was coming eventually, right? The attempt to cl- cancel someone for casting a white Cleopatra is, Gabriel, can you tell me what was the home language of Cleopatra? Uh, I don't know, but she must have been able to speak some Latin because she was romancing hard with old uh, right. Anthony. Her home language was not any of the Egyptian dialects. It was Greek. Why? Because she was descended from a line of conquering Macedonian generals who, after the breakup of Alexander's empire, had perched themselves atop of the the hierarchy in Egypt and had essentially colonized it. It was a colonial settler state at the time, right? Ptolemaic Egypt. It's a whole period. Are assaulting my brain with fact here. (laughs) (laughs) So, in other words, she was notable in her family for being the first of her entire dynasty who'd been ruling Egypt for, I think, at that point, like 200 years, 300 years. I can't remember exactly. Uh, She was the first person in her dynasty to learn any Egyptian languages because she did a whole sort of woman of the people, queen of the people vibe. That was like her whole shtick, right? Um, She was. If any, if she had any ancestry that wasn't Greek, it was a little bit uh, Persian because some of Alexander's generals in the early days had married a Persian nobility. But she was almost certainly a Mediterranean-looking person, which so is exactly saying, what Gal Gadot looks like. You're saying if anything, Gal Gadot is not white enough. Yes. <laughs> well, actually, she's probably about right, right? Because they're both sort of Mediterranean-looking. They look kind of olivey. Um, yeah. I think she. But wins. someone. She, I saw a fantastic she get it because tweet. she's was, a great actress. No, she shouldn't. And she's a, well, I don't know if she's a great actress, but she's a really good looking actress. And she's like, I, I find it very funny that every time she plays a role, she always does it with an Israeli accent. She doesn't always try to put on one. And that's, that's great because it's like suddenly every character she's playing is Israeli. Wasn't she but, in the army? But, yes, I think she was. But most, most people in Israel are, are in the army. That, um, that's why she should get it. Because she actually service. knows how to wield a gun. <laughs> yes, yes. So, uh, where was it going about this? Oh, yes, I saw a great okay. tweet, which, which I had to repeat here. Hold on, hold on. Yeah. And it was, you, uh, you a, a fumbling pseudo-intellectual. Oh, she can't play the role because she's not dark-skinned enough. Me, an re- actual classics major, she shouldn't get the role because she's too good-looking. Because there's quite a lot yes. of the classic no, sources agree that, yes. that Cleopatra was not very pretty, but she was just really charming and uh, good at you know using her sexuality and stuff, and that's why she was able to to kind of ensnare these Roman generals. Also, anyway, also like cross-dressing, and she liked cross-dressing. She liked playing the man. He liked playing the girl. You know, she was kinky. right. Exactly. She 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 was kind of weird. She was kind of fun. She was charming. She was kinky, and but you can result, see her face. Uh, They've kind of reproduced her face because it was imprinted on coins that have survived. 
And it's, yeah. Ooh, Although they yeah. were made later in her life when she was a bit, you know, carrying extra weight. <laughs> That's very sensitively put, Nick. Okay, but while we're in that part of the as world, a person of size, I, <laughs> I, I want to say something. I want to. I want to give a. I want to sort of offer a hypothesis of what the Middle East can teach us about what's going wrong in America and what's going wrong in South Africa, and right. that is like. There is this nasty racist thing that has uh, been around for sort of most of our lives, uh, most of our teenage and adult lives, which is sort of thinking that um, Arab people in particular and and some Persian people are are kind of somehow genetically imbued with a madness that makes them committed to um, the Quran in a way yeah, that like programs for jihadism. Yes. And so... Being anti-Islam got conflated with being anti-Arab, and being anti-Islam itself is a bit silly in some ways. So, but here's so part of the reason that this has been on my mind is I'm back in Newcastle, and hand on my heart, the most uh, human and insightful and provocative and hard to process conversations I've had have been with devout Muslims, who have been so on point when it comes to analyzing the causes of farm attacks and farm murders, the way that it's just become explicit for big politicians to swoop in and sow racial divisions, for laws to engender uh, tensions between landowners and employers or uh, vagrants and to take advantage of that in order to fatten out the patronage network and uh, and also distract from their own uh, governance failures. They've been so on point with all of that. And they've been so on point that like, we're not going anywhere until people begin to pray. And they were quite clear. They were like, to us, that means, you know, we pray five times a day. We've got our way of doing it. We read the Quran. It's got very strict rules and we abide by those rules, although not perfectly, we're sinners all. Um, but, you know, you guys might have Judaism or Christianity or Hinduism or, you know, you can be a secularist. They Very sweet to say, you know, you might not even believe in a God, but you believe in something sort of um, something that grounds morality, something that makes immediate pleasure uh, and immediate power grabs not really be the the end all that it seems to be when you're in the thick of like a video game lifestyle. And. And I was very moved by, and I've, and I've, and since that, I first had that conversation three weeks ago, and then I came back and I saw them again, and I saw them again now. And they asked me to read some of the Quran, and I've been reading some of the Quran. And yeah, dude, I think some of that text is is amazingly, uh, it's kind of provocative. It's provocative to me because I because I know so well because my introduction to it, the first time I ever thought about the Quran was was when I was an 11 years old and two airplanes flew into the Twin Towers and I asked my teacher, why did that happen? And she was like a Christian bigot and she said, it's because of the Quran. Um, so it's like, it is a learning process for me. And I realized that I do still have some baggage to to unload from years ago, just because I didn't confront it. It's not like I've actively had anything against Islam, but I've just had baggage in the back of my mind that I haven't looked at. And now I've been looking at it and, and seeing uh, amazing aspects to the text. And it's made me realize the flip side of it is that why has why are there dominant caliphates? Why was there a, 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 an Islamic state whose idea of justice was was Crucifying violent people. chaos? Yeah, 
was total terrorism. Why, how did that happen? And the answer is not race, and it's not religion either. The answer is true believers. And this is such an old word. This is such an old word in our lifetimes that I think we've forgotten it. And it's one that I haven't heard in a long time. Fanatics. There are fanatics. They're people who just come to believe so passionately in a one-dimensional view that they measure everything up right. against that. And, and they bend the whole of reality around that belief. Yeah. yeah. And I think that this, yeah. and I think that there's I think this is racist. Refusing to call a black person a fanatic is racist. Refusing to call a white person a fanatic is racist. I think America, if especially the America that I lived in, there are so many white fanatics that I see on my Facebook. People, if they were saying yeah. that about the Quran, I'd have no trouble calling them a fanatic. But they're saying mm. about like they have got a whole view of history according to which you can tell who's holy and who is an infidel, who must be ground under the heel of the righteous and who must be raised up to heaven on on flimsy paper-thin nonsense. Stuff yeah. as thin as a skin color. It's, dude, it's, I find it sickening to realize in myself that like, I don't think I've ever called a white person a fanatic, like a fanatic race nationalist. Mm. And I think that I got a little bit distracted with Antifa, which is a terrorist organization. But at the same time, when Donald <laughs> Trump calls something a terrorist organization, I just assume everything he's saying is an exaggeration. But like, if you if 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 you're burning and looting, if you're sowing division, oh, if, you, if you're if ripping you down statues very wide, Lincoln, you, you are hit, hit the right thing. Yeah, no, and those guys are. Um, they do believe in the complete abolition of the state and the institution of people's tyranny, kind of thing, right? Uh, they are anarcho-syndicalists and neo-Marxists and racial nationalists and, and, and they are. And they believe with such fervent, you know, fire. I don't know if you've ever seen Antifa people talking. There's some videos of them talking at the, um, attacking the mayor because he went to a town hall recently, Ted Wheeler. Because, of course, despite all of his relatively soft hands with dealing with Antifa, there still have been Antifa people arrested, uh, which is you know, one one Antifa member arrested is too many for Antifa. And so they go and they take him to task at town halls and they have people in black masks and they sit there and they say, and they're filled with expletives and just this horrible burning hatred. And they just say, your time of tyranny is over. Our suffering is at an end. We will destroy you and tear you down. You, you know, you are the past. We are the future. It's It's terrifying. It's like watching a mad person say something. Yeah. Dude, and I had the same thing uh, two weeks ago when I was in Newcastle, and there was Sia Bongamatu. He's pled guilty to killing Glenn and Vita Rafferty, to doing a murder three weeks before that. He's sitting in jail. He comes to the magistrate's court to to say he doesn't want bail because he's, you know, presumably because he's afraid of going outside, and uh, and his co-collaborators um, sorting him out and making sure he doesn't say anything to cops to incriminate them. And outside, after he's refused bail. There's Lucky Shabalala, local EFF leader, chanting down with the word down and having people chant along with him. And I ask him, what are you doing here? We're here for the black child. Do you mean Sia Bongamatku? Yes, here's the black child. We are here for all uh, children of blackness. For we are all innocent. And it's the mm. system that is doing something to him and we're here to protect him. It's fanaticism to stand outside yeah. of, 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 of where a guy has just pled guilty to murder and say, no, we're, we're, we're on your side. 
we're against the farmers. We want Boers to 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 go down. It's fanaticism. It's and and this and and the reason I think fanaticism is an important thing to focus on is because we started with the expropriation bill, breaking it down a little bit. And people are going to talk about this forever, and you're going to hear about it, and you're going to get sick about it. But, no, but the thing is, it's a, talk about it it's, it's a slow train, and we need to think, talk about it so we can find good, good ways to stop it, because there must be a good way to stop it. But anyway, we analyzed it, and we try to analyze what it is and also who stands to benefit. And that's important, because if you can figure out who stands to benefit, then you can figure out what levers to try and pull, what levers to try and get your hands on to try and block to stop the thing from going through. And yes... Patronage network guys stand to benefit. Uh, race merchants who sort of just benefit politically, economically, or in the esteem market in terms of kudos and likes, they stand to benefit from this kind of thing. But there's a there's a third category of person who stands to benefit, which is the most worrying, and it's the fanatic, the true believer mm. who just wants this because they believe that this is justice, that vengeance yeah. is righteousness, that you can identify sinners by pigment that you can identify sinners by parchment, by who owns something and who doesn't. That old yeah. communist idea is also very deep. If you have a bucky, if you have a nice house in Mshlanga Rocks, if you have your kids haven't had to sleep on an empty belly, then you're the devil, and I'm the, the angel our, of life, and old I friend, will smite uh, you down. As our old friend Mark said, property is theft. So, so it is. Uh, anyway, I think we should wrap up there. So, yeah. recommendations for the week, uh, for the future. What do you have in the tank? I okay. Do you want me to go first? No. I, okay, you go first, but I want to say a preface, which is that I recommend that our listeners um, think about... Buy gold. Uh, okay, buy gold. That's always, that's, <laughs> that's always right. Think, of, think about the texts, the movies, the poems, the paintings, the plays, the conversations, anything that, that, that's put fanaticism in front of your eyes. And uh, and made you grapple with it and think about it. And if you guys have interesting recommendations for us, uh, send it along. Because one of the things I'd like to help me deal with it is to get some ironic distance. You know, that's why I like literature and history and stuff to see how mm. it played out in different times, and to and to and to use that to find opportunities for growth, and also and also just to not become a fanatic myself. Like I don't want to be a fanatical anti-fanatic or anything. You know, I want I want to try and keep my mind. <laughs> Yes. Sober and clean of no, fanaticism. Exactly. You need to you need to be free of madness. Um, right. So my recommendation, and I think this is a it's a, it's a this is this is a complex lecture to look at. Right. Uh, so it's a lecture by an American historian. Uh, I can't remember his name, but uh, there's a YouTube video called "American Air Power in World War II. And then it goes bracket WW2HRT underscore 31 dash 08, close bracket. So, you know, it's, that it's is, a, uh, you, you our, might have to say that again. I'm writing it down, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can rewind. It's a podcast. <laughs> anyway, point is, if you search American air power in WW2, uh, it should come up. And what it is, is it's an American history professor just talking about what it took what it meant to bomb Japan and Germany in the Second World War. Uh, particularly the bit on Japan is quite interesting, but also shocking, because he really goes into exactly what the technical details of the firebombing of Japan was. And this is something that like killed 
one of the raids, I think they estimate around 100,000 people, a lot of whom were civilians, although not only. Um, and he also at the end talks a little bit about how a Japanese audience responded to his analysis. And it is both sobering, but also he also defends to a certain extent these 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 actions and it's 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 something that i think people should listen to because even if you're horrified by that or even if you're kind of sympathetic to that uh it's like a really cold-faced look at what was an incredibly dark period of human history um which is the second world war of course uh and it's also just kind of interesting from a sort of the, the earlier bits of the lecture are kind of you know less dark but more interesting about just the sort of technical way that people had to overcome problems um, I think he also tells a story about the bat bombs, which is <laughs> the American Air Force, uh, due to a guy having contacts with Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, funded a program to attach incendiary bombs to bats and drop them on Japanese cities. And this is a real project that, that was funded and almost deployed. It, it's real, and the only reason it didn't come to 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 completion is because in one of the tests they by mistake burned down the airfield they were testing at because the bat bombs were effective <laughs> oh my god <laughs> because the manhattan project stole all the money they did that's amazing the money they entered the nuclear bomb anyway that's great that lecture. reminds me of a yeah I sobering lecture because i think it yeah. really sort of like it, it reminds you of a lot of the of, of a lot of what war is like particularly a total war um and it's a good reminder of why we should never want one ever again Yes. Uh, but anyway, so that's my recommendation. And what's yours? Okay, my small segue is that the Brits had a very strange use of pigeons during World War II. One of them, or yeah, World War II. One of them was they used them as carrier messages, but the other one was they put pigeons in the noses of missiles with a glass front and then sort of trained them to see pictures with pictures of the, of the target to peck at that, you know, so they put a picture of the target on a piece of paper and then a bit of corn on top of it. And then they pick the target so that you'd have a pigeon being like a honing missile. Uh, and it also was never used, but it, it was shown to be effective. But then they, I don't know, they ran out of money or they decided the Americans were better at bombing or something. Okay. My recommendation is, um, a YouTube video. I, I watched quite a few, but there's one in particular, if you just YouTube Antonin Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, it should be the first one that comes up. It's a sort of 50 minute conversation between the two of them. And she's so tiny and bird-like and he's so large. And they, they, they were the opposite of fanatics. Hey? They were so intelligent and so firmly in disagreement with one another. They really mm. saw the world through different eyes and had different principles and different ways of interpreting text and doing their jobs. And at the same time, we're famous friends. And there's something... We've mentioned that before on this podcast on The Daily Friend, um, and it's just like a well-known fact, and I think that's that's too cheap in a way. There was something about just watching how they relate to each other that mm. was so much more rewarding than just knowing that they're enemy, that they're like intellectual opponents, but that they're personal friends. There's something really mm. rewarding about seeing them actually in operation together for an hour. And also the content of the conversation is really interesting about constitutional interpretation, which is something very much on the front of my mind. And then just as a as a sort of uh, twist in the tail to that, um, I then watched uh, part of uh, sort of eulogies made for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and it was very moving. And then I watched one for Antonin Scalia by uh, Justice Clarence Thomas, 
and it's eight minutes long. And I think that, dude, I don't know, maybe maybe I'm just like emotionally a wreck right now, but it, <laughs> it definitely made me tear up because it just, it is the most intelligent, beautiful, sincere sort of tribute from one friend to another that I think mm. I've ever seen mm. in uh, unscripted. Uh, yeah, really beautiful, beautiful, touching stuff. And yeah, I mean, those people can disagree and uh, and work together. And I think that's I think that's a that is that is a human quality to cherish and to draw from. Definitely. Anyway, um, so let's call it to a close here. Thanks everyone for listening. We'll catch you next time and uh, keep that flag of liberty flying. Grr, 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 grr.